You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Teachers say their livelihoods are on the line, and so they're at the state capitol today to push lawmakers on pay and retirement. So many teachers are taking part in this lobby day from Englewood schools near Denver that the district canceled classes today. On the phone is one of those teachers from that district. Libby Booker is a third grade teacher at Charles Hay World School. Hi, Libby. Hi, how are you? I'm good. You're you're inside the Capitol right now? Yes, I'm in the Capitol right now getting ready to try to talk to some legislators. Okay, I believe you've marched and the idea is to have these one-on-one meetings. I know that one frustration fueling this day of action is how much teachers spend their own money on students. Uh, a survey conducted by the state's largest teachers union finds that to be about 650 bucks a year. D- does that ring true for you? Oh, absolutely. I am I am constantly spending my own money on my students. I buy things such as uh, snacks, um, science supplies, papers, markers, glue, uh, tissues, and pretty much anything we need in, in the classroom. I am purchasing it for my students so that they have what they need to be in school and be successful. Now, why are you having to purchase those things? Why doesn't the school take care of that? Um, because there is such a shortage in funding for schools. Um, there is not a, there's just not enough money. And the money they have, they're putting to hire the minimal teachers that we can. There's a huge teacher shortage. And so the money has to come from somewhere, and it comes from the teachers. Okay, you say you buy snacks for students. They would go hungry otherwise? Tell me more about that. Yeah, yeah. Many of our students are high needs students and they're um, low income. And so we have a high um, free and reduced rate. And with that, then we know that they come to school oftentimes not having had breakfast or they go home and the last meal that they will have would have been the lunch that they get at school. And so our day is long and they need kids are growing. They need snacks. And so oftentimes um, when parents don't uh, send snacks in or provide the money for the snacks, and I kind of supplement it with my own money. I was surprised to hear you say that you buy science supplies. That seems pretty fundamental to what a teacher does and a student needs to learn. What do you mean by science supplies? Well, science, um, you know, when you're doing a science experiment, there's lots of things that you need. Uh, cotton balls, Q-tips, water, water jugs, uh, two-liter bottles, you'll have to do an experiment with two-liter bottles, and so you got to go to the store and get the two-liter bottle of soda or water and empty it out, and then you have your empty two-liter bottle of water that you need to do the experiment. Um, ice cube trays, it just depends what the experiment is and, and what it calls for, and we don't always have those things in our classroom. And so uh, as teachers, we supplement it because we want the kids to have that experience um, doing doing science and doing hands-on and not just looking at it on the Internet. It's very important that our kids physically touch these things and don't just watch a movie on, on TV about it. Have you gone to your principal and just said... I need funds for this? Oh, absolutely. We go to our principals, but they don't, if, if the money's not in the budget because legislators won't fund schools, then they, they can't give it to me either. And we do fundraisers and, and we do everything we can, but sometimes it comes down to the teachers taking money out of their own pocket and, and paying these supplies so their kids have what it needs. That's what teachers do. We will dive shortly into state spending for education uh, the specifics of that in, in just a moment. But m- many of your fellow teachers from Englewood are using a personal day to be at the Capitol. Recently, though, we've seen 
teacher walkouts and strikes in places like Oklahoma and Arizona. Uh, how close do you think Colorado or maybe Englewood is to taking similar action? Um, I feel that Colorado and Inglewood and the teachers are going to continue to fight. We're going to continue to take lobby days. We're going to continue to take our personal days. Uh, we're going to continue to call legislators and email and have our voice heard for our students. It's all about our students, and we're going to continue to do what we need to do until our legislators hear our students and hear our voice. You mentioned the teacher shortage. What do you think is behind that in Colorado? Uh, the teacher shortage comes from uh, college students not going into the profession. They're, they don't see it as a viable way to make a living. I have teachers that are working two to three jobs. Um, my, myself, I have to work extra jobs. I had to stop my life insurance this year because I couldn't afford it, and I couldn't afford to pay my bills. So it came down to pay my bills or have life insurance. And so I had to... Uh, I had to stop my own life, my personal life insurance because I couldn't pay for it. So when you're making a career choice and you hear those stories, you're going to choose a different profession. Teacher pay, according to the National Education Association, has declined 7.7% over the past decade. And salaries vary widely, up to $63,000 in Boulder. Rural schools average around 22000 Thanks for being with us. We appreciate it, Libby. You're welcome. That's Libby Booker from the Charles Hay World School in Englewood. And if I'm right, she's going to pass the phone now to the president of the state's largest teachers union, uh, Carrie Dolman of the Colorado Education Association. Carrie, you there with us? Yes. Good morning, Ryan. Hi. Thanks for being with us. I want to start with this question of teacher pay. I know that salaries are a major concern for you. Uh, According to the National Education Association, this state ranks 46th in teacher pay. One way to raise salaries is getting more money from the legislature. That's where you are today. And I'll note that the proposed budget for 2019 includes a $150 million buy-down of the amount schools are owed. Isn't that a good start to increasing salaries? It is a good start, but it's important to remember that's only a start. The negative factor in Colorado is at $828 million. And let me just say for listeners that the negative factor is a fancy way of saying a sort of IOU that the state legislature enacted, I think, first during a recession and has yet to pay down entirely. That is correct. And what we'd like to see is that um, $150 million be used as a down payment and that the legislature commit to paying off the entire balance by 2022. So within the next four years, zeroing out that negative factor. You are hoping for that commitment today from lawmakers? Is that what those individual meetings will focus on in part? Absolutely. In addition to that, we're asking them to um, stop corporate tax breaks, to freeze uh, corporate tax breaks until such time as we're funding our schools at the um, national average for per pupil expenditure. Can you say more about that? What do you mean by corporate tax breaks? Is there one in particular you'd point to? No, all of the corporate tax breaks. Those corporate tax breaks are pulling money out of the state budget and um, contributing to the underfunding year over year of our public schools. But might those be ways of creating good paying jobs if companies wind up moving here or expanding because of them? 
there's a lot of wonderful reasons why um, companies locate here in Colorado besides just the corporate tax breaks. But when you have corporations that are turning billions in profits, um, it's it's not a great argument to say that they're going to create additional jobs. Those jobs are here. They're making billions. It's time that they contribute to Colorado's general fund and school funding. Do you know how much that would free up? I don't have the total dollar amount because there's so many different um, uh, tax incentives provided to corporations and, and they're not all the same. Okay. Uh, it's important to note that, that this day of action for teachers coincides with a big hearing today on PARA. So this is the retirement plan for about 500,000 folks uh, who have worked for the state of Colorado. This includes teachers as well. Uh, this is the retirement plan for, for them, for the state patrol, all sorts of folks. Uh, it, you, know, it, what, it, para- you know, Ryan, one yeah. in 10 of, of Coloradans are um, in the para pension system, and none of us receive Social Security. So uh, definitely a lot of Colorado citizens are being impacted by Senate Bill 200. Uh, Senate Bill 200 is the idea of shoring para up. Uh, so Para has 56 cents for every dollar it owes. Uh, what sacrifices do you think teachers are willing to make in this para negotiation? Well, um, we are willing to talk about increasing the retirement age, okay. uh, but we feel like 65 years is too much. We'd like to see that come down. Currently, it's 58 years in the school division. We additionally would like to see the COLA, which right now is at 2%. This cost of living um, adjustment. Yes, the cost of living adjustment. In Senate Bill 200 right now, it drops to 1.25%. We'd like to see that come up to a minimum of 1.5%. You know, so many of our retirees um, retired after many years of being frozen on salary schedules. So their retirements are already fairly low. And we want to make sure that, you know, given that Colorado has one of the fastest growing economies, our retirees can afford housing and, um, you know, pay for basic necessities and have a secure retirement. Now, what I did not hear you say is that you would be open to the choice of a 401k-like defined contribution plan. That's part of the discussion here. Yeah, absolutely. We want to see the defined contribution plan stripped from the bill. Not only does it not reduce the unfunded liability of our pension, it's actually more expensive for our school districts. So in a state that is already significantly underfunding our schools, it does not make sense to pass an even greater financial burden onto districts by including a defined contribution. Now, there are a number of folks who disagree with you, state treasurer, And a Republican gubernatorial candidate, Walker Stapleton, says there has to be a change. Uh, Your organization, the CEA, has endorsed a candidate who hopes to run against him in the general election, I'll say. Uh, Stapleton told me he favors raising the retirement age, uh, though perhaps higher than than you might like, and offering a 401k-style plan. I tell people all the time, if you're a teacher that's been teaching for 30 years, it's unfair to change the rules of the game on you retroactively. That that doesn't make any sense. Uh, And from from an efficiency standpoint, that would be litigated till the cows come home. But make no mistake, we have 
have to change the system for newer and younger workers in the system because Colorado is making retirement promises to younger school teachers and younger city workers and younger state patrolmen that they have no business making and no means of paying for. You know, supporters of a defined contribution plan also say it's just more flexible. It's more portable for a younger workforce that might move around. What do you say? Well, it's less stable for the um, profession overall, for educators and other public employees who will be retiring. You know, we may have been able to engage in that conversation back in the 70s and 80s when the plan was fully funded. But it's important to remember it was under Governor Owens that the state discounted purchasing years of service. And certainly those discounts have added to the unfunded status of our pensions, as well as the impacts of uh, the recession. I want to ask a question of you that I asked the educator we spoke to earlier, Libby Booker, and that is, uh, as you look at the country right now, some of the walkouts that have happened in other states, I think of Oklahoma principally among them, uh, whether you think Colorado is on the, the precipice of something like that, it appears today's event uh, though uh, I understand well attended, um, you know, has not shut down lots of districts around the state. Um, do, you, do you picture some bigger action coming? You know, I think bigger action is entirely dependent on what steps the House Finance Committee takes today. Um, that will be incredibly critical. If they're able to strip defined contribution um, out of the bill, as well as lower retirement age and um, increase the cost of living adjustment in the bill, um, that may uh, quiet the forces. Um, But not one of the educators here today wants to be here. They're here because they recognize that this is about the future of our profession and the quality of education we can deliver for our students. Did you hope there'd be a bigger turnout? No, I think this is a great turnout. Unlike those other states that um, have had major actions, Colorado has a number of negotiated agreements. And in fact, most of the uh, teachers in this state work under a collectively bargained contract. And so unlike in those other states, we are limited in what we can do. And that's why, in addition to the educators who have taken personal leave to come down to the Capitol, we have staged walk-ins at a number of schools across the state, um, and which is an opportunity to raise public awareness at the school site level. That is Carrie Dahlman, president of the Colorado Education Association, and she's taking part in a day of action at the state capitol. We heard earlier from a teacher who's alongside her. When we come back, the race for governor is a lot clearer now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado's primary ballot is almost set. At party assemblies this weekend, Democrats and Republicans chose candidates to join the hopefuls who are petitioning their way on. But even as party faithful look ahead, the gatherings were also a chance to heal lingering divisions from the last election. 2016 exposed rifts in both parties. We have back-to-back stories from each convention, starting with CPR's Anne-Marie Awad, who was with the Republicans in Boulder. 
In recent years, delegates at the Republican State Assembly have shown they have a fondness for the underdog candidate. This past weekend, Walker Stapleton, the state treasurer, largely regarded as a party favorite, did make it onto the Republican primary ballot. Not so surprising. But he wasn't alone. And the other candidate to make it is not a household name. Say it with me. United, we win. Divided, we lose. One more time. United, we win. Divided, we lose. My name is Greg Lopez. I need your support. Lopez ended up being the sleeper hit of the assembly. His speech resonated with many delegates, and it showed. He will join Stapleton on the primary ballot after winning 33 percent of delegates. Lopez, for his part, says he plans to draw more Hispanic voters into the party. The values of the Hispanic community are conservative. I know how to communicate, engage with, and win the Hispanic vote. I am one of them. Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman was relying on the assembly as her route to the ballot, but that didn't work out. She ended up winning only 5 percent of delegates, ending her campaign. Last week, Walker Stapleton rescinded signatures he had gathered over concerns of fraud and announced that he would instead try his luck at the assembly, a direct challenge to Kaufman. In his nomination speech, Stapleton aligned himself firmly with President Trump. Critics in Washington told President Trump he couldn't get tax reform passed and give Coloradans a tax break. But he never quit and got it done. And I am proud to have been the only treasurer in the country to endorse President Trump's tax plan. And now every person in this room has more money in their pockets. This type of vocal support for Trump was everywhere at the assembly. There were Make America Great Again hats and Trump t-shirts left and right. It was a refreshing change for Delegate Susan Tavachek, who also attended the 2016 assembly. That was when many of Colorado's Republican leaders were in open revolt against a Trump nomination. And Tavachek remembers most of the delegates supported Texas Senator Ted Cruz. It was horrible. I mean, to me, there was so much favoritism for Cruz. They didn't acknowledge Trump at all. I mean, they really didn't at all. The political landscape isn't the only thing that's changed this year. This will be the first time Colorado will hold open primaries. This means unaffiliated voters can vote in one party primary of their choosing. Lopez and Stapleton will need to appeal to those voters before they can turn their attention to whoever becomes the Democratic nominee. In Boulder, I'm Anne Marie Awad. As we said, Colorado Democrats also held their assembly on Saturday, just down the road from the Republicans in Broomfield. And as CPR's Sam Brash reports, delegates there were busy mending fences as well as picking candidates. Those chants are for former state treasurer Carrie Kennedy. The Denver Democrat is running for governor. To reach the Democratic primary, she needed 30 percent of delegates at the assembly. She walked away with 62 percent. Thank you, Colorado Democrats! In her nomination speech, Kennedy could have gone after her opponents. Instead, she called for kindness, both between candidates and as a message. I believe that nothing is more important than how we treat each other. That our strength, our strength comes from our generosity. Kennedy's main opponent this last weekend was Boulder Congressman Jared Polis. He won 33% of the assembly and also called for unity within the party. 
Together, we are Latino, we are black, we are Asian American, we are LGBTQ. Together, we cannot be defeated. The totals qualify both Kennedy and Polis for the primary in late June. Former state senator Mike Johnston already secured his spot through petitions earlier this month, and Lieutenant Governor Donna Lynn's signatures are still being reviewed. But beyond the candidates, the assembly was a chance for Democrats to reflect on the last election. Because that's how we lost everything before. John Larkin is a delegate from Aurora. He says the contest between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton still haunts the party. I think we got divided last election, and that's how we got our president. And I don't think we can afford to do that again. Some see the race for attorney general as emblematic for Democrats. Phil Weiser, a former Obama administration official, made the ballot at the assembly. So did State Representative Joe Salazar, an adamant Sanders supporter. But Larkin doesn't think the contest will break down along familiar fault lines from 2016. People are excited about standing up for their their person. But there's also that undercurrent that we're all going the same direction. Azarel Madrigal is a delegate from Alamosa. She also noticed a positive mood at the assembly. And she says that's because after 2016, Democrats had to work out their differences. So I think that that just taught us to be more cooperative, and that's where this energy is coming from. It's energy she's hoping will contribute to a blue wave in November. But the question first is whether Democrats will turn on each other as the primary heats up. Kerry Kennedy says that's not going to happen. I have a lot of respect for the people who are running in this primary, and elections are about choices. I sure hope that we keep this campaign positive all the way through to Election Day. Polis has also pledged not to go negative, but the next couple of months will test all of the candidates. Recent polling shows Kennedy closing the gap with Polis, and after she dominated the assembly, it's anybody's race. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. All right, let's take a listen now to a few minutes from the stages of these two assemblies. We're going to start with the Republicans. U.S. Senator Cory Gardner, who's from Yuma on the Northeastern Plains, was back in Colorado to rev up the party faithful again on Saturday in Boulder. Colorado, I have a a message. Yesterday I spoke to President Trump and I told him that we were here for a Colorado Republican assembly. And you know what he told me? He said, We are winning. And you know why we're winning? Because we have a justice on the Supreme Court named Neil Gorsuch, a great Coloradan. We are winning because we passed the largest tax cut in over three decades. We are winning. We're winning because we've cut over $60 billion worth of regulations. We have more circuit court judges on the Supreme Court. We've put them on there since the late 1800s. But we got more work to do, Colorado. We got a lot of more work to do. And I'll tell you what, if you listen to the media, what do they tell Republicans? They tell Republicans, we can't win, it's over. That's what they told us in 2010 when we won. That's what they told us in 2011 and 12 when we won. That's what they told us in 2013 and 14 when we... That's what they told us in 2015 and 16 when we... And that's what we're going to do in 17 and 18. We're going to, if we don't, Colorado, it will be 20 years of a Democrat in the governor's office. Will we let that happen? Will we let them take back the state Senate? Will we win the state house? Are we going to keep the majority in the House of Representatives? Are we going to grow the majority in the United States Senate? 
And we're going to do it with Colorado. We're going to do it with your hard work. You were here yesterday away from time and taking time away from family and your jobs to be a, a part of this grand GOP tradition. You're here today taking time away from your family on a weekend because you believe it's important to get out and vote. It's important because of our family. It is never too late in life to keep winning. And that is what we are going to do, Colorado. The veterans, the men and women in this room who continue their fight today, who are going to do one thing in November because of all of you. We are going to win. We are going to win. We are going to win. And it's because of Colorado Republicans like you who are here to do it. Let's get it done, Colorado. Thank you. That is U.S. Senator Cory Gardner speaking at this weekend's Republican State Assembly in Boulder. Rallying the Democrats in Broomfield was Morgan Carroll, their state party chair. So I have a question for you. Who here is ready for a blue wave? Who here believes that health care is a human right? Who here believes that great public education is the cornerstone to a democracy? believes that elections should be decided by people and not corporations? Who here believes we need to protect our only home, planet Earth? Who here believes we must combat racism in all of its forms? Who here is willing to stand up for LGBTQ equality? Who here believes women are equal people who can make their own decisions about their own lives? Who here is willing to fight for full and equal social participation for all people with disabilities? Who here believes that students have a right to go to school without getting shot? Who here believes that peace and diplomacy and building allies is better than war? Who here believes that workers deserve a living wage, a safe workplace, and the right to organize? believes in science and facts? Well, I know I do, and I can think of no greater honor than organizing side by side with each of you to take back our country, to build our blue wave, and to put progress into action. Morgan Carroll, who leads the Colorado Democratic Party. And CPR's coverage of the 2018 election is just getting started. In the coming weeks, you'll hear from the Democratic and Republican candidates for governor. There's a service that washes the clothes of Denver's homeless for free. We told you about the laundry truck from Bayod Enterprises last spring. In its first year, it did nearly 3,000 loads. Well, the nonprofit is about to rev up a second truck. 
So we thought we'd revisit this story from CPR's Stephanie Wolf. She found Glenn Watkins holding a bag of freshly laundered clothes. At the time, he'd been homeless for about six months. What I have is pants. I have a undershirt, underwear, and uh, another shirt. That's all. You know, just everyday stuff, but it's clean. Clean thanks to a truck parked nearby, a laundry truck run by a Denver nonprofit called Bayad Enterprises. Marcus Harris shows us around. So yeah, it's just like a, it's just like a laundromat, except nobody pays. Uh, this is where the coin mechanism would go. Inside are 12 commercial washers and dryers. There's the satisfying scent of detergent and clean clothes. The idea came from a trip Harris took to San Francisco. One of the things I saw there was a shower bus. A regular size public transportation bus that had shower stalls in it. And this bus pulled up to a fire hydrant and they did showers all day, no questions asked. And I was, I was almost moved to tears. Shortly after that trip, an opportunity presented itself to convert an old document-shredding truck. Harris says Bayad, the nonprofit he works for, went to the Denver homeless community with two ideas. Use the truck for showers or turn it into a mobile laundromat. And the consensus was that if you're on the streets in Denver and you're fairly savvy, you can shower. But it's next to impossible uh, to do laundry because of the cost and lack of access to a laundromat. Moreover, clean clothes can make it easier to land a job. The laundry truck, which started earlier this month, can do up to 450 pounds of laundry a day. Harris says some people come with a lot to wash. We had one guy who was living in his car, and he had about seven loads. To make the system run, there's a generator, a propane tank for the dryers. As for water? So here at the Denver Inner City Parish, we're just hooked up to a standard water bib, which goes through this connection here. Basically like what you'd connect a garden hose to. They can also hook up to fire hydrants. It's something Bayad worked with Denver Water on, and the nonprofit has a meter to track the water they use so they can pay for it. But the truck doesn't just offer the chance to do laundry. For Marcus Harris, it represents much more. He says he came to Bayad straight out of prison. I like to consider myself a success story in progress. Came to Bayad with six felony convictions, uh, a history of homelessness and addiction. But they gave me an opportunity to tell my story, and they actually listened. And Bayad Enterprises' second laundry truck will be unveiled next month, May 17th, at its Denver offices. Attendees are encouraged to bring new socks. A major court ruling that involves Google and its Android phone could affect thousands of Coloradans who work in the software industry and many more who rely on those products. David Schachter is a Denver attorney who has followed this case. He's going to tell us more about it. Hi, David. Hi. This is a long-running legal drama between two of the largest software companies in the world. Both have a presence in Colorado, I should say. Uh, Before we get into some of the implications, uh, first in layman's terms, why was Oracle suing Google? Oracle was suing Google because they claimed that Google's use of what's called the Java API set, which is this... Uh, about 11 million or 3 million line set of programs that they made 
publicly available. Uh They were saying that Google was using those in a way that infringed their copyright by selling it in all of their Android phones and making billions of dollars off of their use of it. That's what the case was about. Google had integrated this Java product owned by Oracle into its phones. It was pretty central to the operating of those phones. And what happened really was when they started doing this, Java came from Sun Microsystems, which during the first parts of this dispute, Oracle purchased Sun. But Sun had put Java out on the web saying this is free right. it was, for anyone to use. That was always my understanding that's, of Java and JavaScript and things like that. that. That's is, why it became so popular. And also it was a hugely usable program. It was great because it allowed people to build all these programs using what they call these APIs instead of having to reinvent the wheel every time you could just pull them down. Okay. So everyone loved it. And thought it was free. And suddenly what? It's supposed to cost money? So what happens is that Google took these APIs and wanted to start building the Android platform. Mm-hmm. Um, the the There were two conditions that were imposed on using these APIs. One is that they did have some minimal license requirements if you're going to build something that went out and you were making money on it. And then the second one was that they didn't want you to do things on a competing platform. Other than that, though, it was freely available. You didn't have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. You could just pull it down, download it. Okay. And that seems pretty clear cut. Is this a question of like, I don't know, Google not reading the fine print? No, the, the question is literally, it comes down to an interpretation of a part of the Copyright Act called the Fair Use Doctrine, which uh-huh. basically means it's a statute that says... Even though these copyright owners own all the rights, if you make some use of their work that's fair, and they talk about here's what we think is fair, then you're not infringing. That's what this entire case was about is, is this a fair use of the APIs for Google to go out and make tons of money off of selling Android phones. It's amazing how these things can boil down to one word, like mm-hmm. fair, and and, and drag on for case. years. Uh, Oracle won the latest round in court recently, Correct. which, and, which and means Google's on the hook for, for how much? Nine, ten billion easily. Um, what happened was this case took about a nine-year path. Oracle, well, first they tried to negotiate a deal. That fell apart. The, the case, you know, no one knows exactly what happened, but you can draw your own conclusions. They were fighting over who's going to get money out of it. And what was happening with Oracle is they were trying to come out with their own use of it for a smartphone, and they bet on the wrong horses. I see. And so they saw the Android phone as... um, A threat. The threat. Because Google was blowing everyone out of the market. Mm. Um, Oracle, in the meantime, was trying to cut deals with BlackBerry, Nokia, there's another one called Danger that I've never even heard of, but as history has shown us, yes. <laughs> those are in museums now. They they just they picked the wrong ponies, and meanwhile, Google is just destroying them in the market. Google will surely appeal, possibly to the U.S. Supreme Court. Google has two. Well, there are three options at this point. They could try to negotiate a settlement because what officially the court said is, yes, you're infringing. Now go back to a jury and figure out how much you owe. Okay. So needless to say, I'm sure there are lots of settlement negotiations. That's one path. They can do two routes of appeal. This was a three-judge... You know, we're getting a little uh, in the weeds, I okay. think, on the judicial end, but they have a number of, of they, legal they can paths appeal. forward, Ultimately and they could to go the to the Supreme High Court. Court. Correct. I think what's important to get to here is the effect that this might have mm-hmm. 
on other developers and on those of us who rely on the products that they make. Okay. Do you see this as some paint it? As a victory for the creators, so that we might see, you know, more innovation, or uh, do you see it more as, as some of the critics of this decision say, as, a, as it will have a chilling effect? Yeah, I mean, that's as if you want to talk about people who are out there using the Java APIs right now, which, is which again supposedly are free, and they're still free. They haven't changed their terms. Everyone now is scared that, well, wait, am I about to get a nasty letter from Oracle saying now that we've got this? big gas tank behind us and we just won, we're going to start hitting you up for more fees or there's going to be limitations set. That's why the programming community is concerned that this is going to chill innovation. And is this programming just in our phones? Like, give us a sense of of what it fuels. It's in desktops, laptops, car dashboards. It's, I mean, that's the Java APIs are so well written that they are used now in virtually any kind of smart electronic platform. Okay. Home appliances. I mean, anywhere that's going right now. So you're saying that there are a lot of developers out there who are under a big question mark right now. Correct. Now, the case isn't over. And one of the interesting things about this case is that in a normal intellectual property case, you not only want money, you want what's called an injunction. You want a court to say, stop selling this because you're infringing on my intellectual property rights. Mm. This case never involved an injunction. It's all about money. It's how much do you owe me for what you've been doing with it, which which is good for the programmers because this doesn't this didn't end up in an order saying yes, stop, stop selling stop, Android phones. Right, stop programming exactly. this way or using that this. That didn't happen. Okay, but um, it is a question of money. It's a question of um, money and it's not over yet, but programmers are worried about if I'm using these APIs and I'm suddenly successful like Google Am I going to be chased? Do I have to be looking over my shoulder that here comes Oracle to say, now that's not fair? What do you think that means for consumers of products, the likes of which you've mentioned? I mean, other than, you know, availability is not going to be affected. Price, obviously, could go up or down depending on where it goes. Especially Um, if they see liabilities If they see liabilities with it. I mean, that could have a huge impact. But the phones themselves are still available. You can still go to the store and buy them. Google's going to be the one ultimately that writes the check if that's where this goes. Is there a lesson in this for software developers? Like, is, is there something about Google's behavior here or the steps they took or didn't take that others could learn from? Well, that's a good question. A um, couple of points there. I mean, Google, obvi- I don't think anyone could have predicted how much Google was going to take over this market. Oracle certainly didn't think, you know, they called their bluff. And when the negotiations failed, it was like, okay, we'll see you out there and we're going to come out with our own phone. Google obviously just blew them out of the water on that. So you can't really say, well, that means don't be successful. Right, right exactly. It. You know, that I mean, no, no one's like going to say away. Um, but at the same time, you know, there, there is some merit in some of the ways that Google some, – some of the evidence that came in, for example, was that – there were 11,000 lines of code that Google had copied. That was not disputed out of 3 million, so tiny little fraction. And Google was saying, well, geez, we barely copied anything. But they had admitted in the trial proceedings that the part we copied was the most important part of all those 3 million lines, and we could have done it ourselves 
we just took the shortcut and used yours instead. Ah, some interesting extenuating so circumstances. I don't know if you want to call it arrogance, but they were just like, hey, why should I go re- why should I reinvent it? It's right here. Okay. We'll just use that. We'll keep you know. watching this as I know you will, David. Thank you for being with us. Okay. Thank you. That's Denver attorney David Schachter, and he clued us in on the case of Oracle versus Google, which shall continue. That is an elk bugling, or at least it sounds like that. The big noise was actually made by this little girl. My name is Ava, and I like elk calling and hunting with my dad. Six-year-old Ava King is a kindergartner from Fruta, Colorado. She recently took fourth place in the peewee division of the World Elk Calling Championships. Her parents are both hunters, but Ava didn't learn to call elk from them. She taught herself after getting an elk call at a hunting expo. It's a hollow tube that resembles a wiffle ball bat. Ava mastered the call by going on YouTube. And letting them do it, and then I tried to copy them. So, and I got better and better every time I did it. It took about a week of practice before she felt she had it mastered. And then, like, the last time I wanted to do it, I sound like a professional elk caller. Ava doesn't plan to compete in elk calling again next year, though. She's looking forward to using her skills to help her dad when they go out hunting together. She's also looking forward to turning 12 so she can hunt elk on her own. Until then, she hopes to master a new kind of call. I want to do coyote next year. Ava says her classmates don't understand her hobby of mastering animal sounds, and she just can't get them interested. As for how that makes her feel... Six-year-old Ava King of Fruta. She recently took fourth place in the peewee division of the World Elk Calling Championships. And we'll be right back. The most magical moment of the Colorado avalanche season came just over a week ago. They beat the St. Louis Blues to get the last playoff spot in the Western Conference. Their reward, though, was to play the top team in the conference. And the Avs are now down 2-0 in the best-of-seven series. So they come home to Denver tonight to try and turn things around. Sports writer Adrian Dater will be there. In fact, he's at the Pepsi Center now for the morning skate. Hi, Adrian. Good morning, Ryan. I hope you can hear these pucks in the background a little bit. Uh, I think I I can. The pucks, you're saying. (laughs) Yes, and maybe the, the skates. Fox, yes. Uh, we, we, it's good to be with you. <laughs> it's nice to have you. So you've been in Nashville. How is the atmosphere there for the first two games? Well, I would, I've described it as kind of a you know, uh, evangelical revival atmosphere. It's, uh, <laughs> it is a Bible belt down there, but it is uh, got a fervor to it that borders on religious. It's, it's crazy. They love to have a good time in Nashville. They're really into the Predators and it's really a factor in the in the games. I think the crowd. So uh, it's 
it, I think the pressure's on the uh, Avalanche fans a little bit to, to respond to a little Rocky Mountain Thunder tonight. We'll see if, <sighs> see if they can do it. Yeah, how much momentum can the Avs get from being at home, do you think? Well, they're a very good home team this season. Uh, unlike last season, when no, they weren't good anywhere, uh, <laughs> they were very good at home this season. So it, it should be a factor. Now the Avalanche are playing shorthanded because some key guys are out. But uh, the home crowd, I think, always makes – I think a goal's difference in a game. So I'm going to go ahead and say that they're up one nothing already tonight. Okay. And uh, and, and I think they uh, I think they'll have a good game tonight. Well, there's our interview. I'm no kidding. Uh, they, they are big underdogs uh, as the lowest seed going against the top team in the West. Um, I, I, how unusual would an upset be? Well, they're not that unusual in hockey. National Predators were ranked 16th among all 16 teams going into the playoffs last year. They made it to Game 6 of the Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, Los Angeles Kings are ranked 8th in the Western Conference in 2012. They won the Stanley Cup. Uh, Edmonton beat Detroit one year when they were 8th-ranked seed in 2006. So it happened. Uh, the Avalanche were number 1-ranked team in uh, 1998, lost to number eight, number 8 Edmonton in the first round. So hockey does typically have more upsets. Uh, this series isn't over yet. They typically say you shouldn't worry until you lose your first home game. Uh, and this team is, is very capable of upsetting Nashville. Okay. Uh, you know, the Avs are coming off a absolutely horrendous season last year, and this is significant <laughs> significant progress. How did they pull off such a turnaround, do you think? Well, uh, number one, they got younger and faster. The team had a new attitude of, all right, the old guys are going to have to go out, and we're going to just start over with kids. So that happened. But the biggest thing that I think that happened this year, Ryan, was, they made a trade in November. They traded their star, Matt Duchesne, to uh, Ottawa on a three-way deal that involved Nashville, actually. Uh, not only did the Avalanche get a really good player back, Sam Gerrard, they also got some prospects back, draft picks. And even almost as important as that is it changed the team chemistry a little bit. Things were hmm. tense with Duchesne around. He wanted to be traded. It was a tense atmosphere in the room. And when that trade happened, Everybody kind of lightened up, I think, and the chemistry got much better. And uh, and they, they they bonded and became a playoff team. The best player in the series, I think for either team, is center Nathan McKinnon for the Avs. Speeding through center, two-on-one. McKinnon's got a man with him. He did, and he scores! Nathan McKinnon wins the game for the Avs in overtime. Gets bumped, wipes off the check, gives to McKinnon. He walks in, he shoots, he scores! Sitting here, game in, game out, watching a 22-year-old guy in his fifth year become the cornerstone of a franchise. What, what, how is he so good? Well, he was he was born that way. I mean, he's been a <laughs> top prospect coming up <laughs> as a little kid. But he uh, he was the first-ranked pick overall in the 2013. Uh, I'll tell you what, though, Ryan, he, he was rookie of the year his first year, 2014. Uh, he kind of, you know, like the rest of the team, kind of dipped a little bit. He uh, he really got serious this summer, though, last summer, uh, conditioning his body better. He's, he's, you know, he's much more uh, lean and mean-looking now, uh, and uh, he really went out there and played like a, like a man who really wanted to get to that absolute A-list level uh, that was kind of slipped away for a couple of years. He got it back. He's going to be, I think, he, I, from what I'm hearing, he's a, he's, 
he's a top two finalist for the Hart Trophy, which is NHL most valuable player. Uh, I think it's going to come down to either him or New Jersey's Taylor Hall. So uh, uh, just a great year, and he's uh, – I'll tell you what, he is the best player on the ice for either team. Uh, kind of the <laughs> problem right now is that Nashville's got a lot of really good players just below that. Maybe the Avs don't have quite as many. Uh, but uh, if Nathan McKinnon gets red hot, that's when upsets can happen, and the Avs have to have to hope for that for sure. Yeah, and it, this question really, not just of individuals, but of chemistry, as you say. Uh, very quickly, yeah. one of Nashville's stars this series is Philip Forsberg, um, and that's a name probably very familiar to Avs fans. Is he any relation to Peter, the former Colorado star? Uh, no, he isn't, no, okay. although he plays like it. <laughs> he looks like he's related. He scored two great goals in game one of the BTF in the third period. Uh, but no, no relation. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he's he's very good. And uh, ironically enough, Peter Forsberg played briefly, had a cup of coffee, basically, with the National Predators one year. So who would have ever thought, though, that he'd, he'd be the – second best Forsberg to play for the Predators. That, that is true, though. That is Adrian Dater. He's covered the Avs since the team moved to Denver more than two decades ago. Now writes for BSN Denver. And he's written several books, including 100 Things Avalanche Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. The Avs take the ice tonight. This is CPR News.